it's a magical moment in many sense is for transformation in that the organization itself is going through an examination of strategy, of roadmaps, of execution, an openness to how processes are redefined, how customer, employee, and shareholder experiences are evolved. And to be a key contributor in that journey, representing data, business intelligence, and data science is really, in many ways, a very liberating experience to be pulled into the change rather than having to sell the art of the possible and then see what sticks. So it's been absolutely phenomenal and tremendous. Welcome to the Data Chief. The Data Chief is a podcast for data and analytics leaders to share their personal stories and insights on technology, culture, and leadership. What empowers someone or even an entire company to change? For our guest today, Cherston Moody, the answer involves a desire to constantly be learning something new and an openness to evolve. Cherston knows what it takes to learn, build, and evolve. She is the first chief data officer at Prudential Financial and previously the initial chief data and analytics officer at State Farm. Her commitment to being a perpetual learner has set her up to be a groundbreaking data leader. Regarding Prudential Financial, as you heard her say, the company is in a magical moment of change. Tune in to learn how Prudential's cooperative culture has set it up nicely for a magical digital transformation. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people from companies like Walmart, Hulu, Schneider Electric, Cloud Academy, and Mercado use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. You can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com. Cheriston, welcome to The Data Chief. Thank you so much. Very, very happy to be here today. Now, where are you joining us from? Basking Ridge, New Jersey, my home office. <laughs> oh, so so only like half an hour south of where I am in New Jersey. This is we're getting a New Jersey and data pack. But um, as we are on video, we also have a love of big dogs. So who's that in the background there? <laughs> All right. This is uh, our family's Great Dane, Tiny. Uh, he may join us, uh, and he's a 150-pound male Great Dane. So, oh my goodness, when he comes over to say hi, there's there's really no avoiding him uh, in the camera. But he's uh, he's super sweet and is something now of a de facto mascot uh, for the Chief Data Office team at Prudential. So it's a lot of fun. Oh, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. So the so the laugh is on on Tiny. Like how tiny was he when you got him? Uh, so he was uh, approximately thirty pounds at uh, nine weeks, and when he turned uh, one year, he was about a hundred pounds. And then in his second year, uh, he added on the last fifty. So we. Genuinely had the experience of we would go to bed and wake up the next morning and say, wow, you're bigger and we can tell. Yes. Uh, so it was it was a lot of fun, though. Uh, the first year was a lot of sort of floppy ears and big paws and, you know, puppy antics. So it's um, it's been a really uh, 
fantastic stress reliever in many ways during the pandemic. So it's been good. Oh, for sure. For sure. Well, um, some people sometimes see a dog in the background (laughs) in some of my videos. Our Bernadoodle was only supposed to be between 60 and 80 pounds, (laughs) and he's running between 110 and 120. So the laugh is definitely on me. Um, So we share a love of data, and I want to go back in time because I do think your career beginnings were shaped very early on. So tell us a little bit about how you got here um, and an early role model in your life. Yeah, absolutely. My early role model, my my family has always been very important and very influential. Uh, in particular, my father. He was the first person in his family to graduate from high school. And he went on to get a PhD from the University of Chicago in theoretical population genetics. So he was a professional uh, mathematician. He was a professor. And it's uh, really from from birth onwards, uh, he instilled a sense of curiosity, which inevitably led to uh, being a lifelong learner and in many ways challenger, um, believing that there are really no practical limits um, to the types of questions that could be asked or the opportunities um, that I could seek. And very importantly as well to being the the learner and the challenger was he had an incredible sense of kindness about him as well and a talent to really meet people where they were and to sort of progress together. He was very much a teacher uh, in that sense. So it uh, was this combination lesson in many ways uh, to keep learning, to have an instilled sense of curiosity, to to challenge the norms. Um, but that is entirely compatible uh, with kindness and fostering of healthy relationships, both personally and professionally. So I think as I think back, you know, it was really, uh, he has been a, a towering influence uh, for me in how I think about opportunities, um, learning, uh, my leadership accountability to my teams and how I, I help to foster um, sort of an environment that is a healthy, challenging environment uh, for the types of transformation opportunities that data and data analytics can represent. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, uh, Chairston. So I look at how you have a mindset of helping others learn about data, but also how you've been continuously learning. So you graduated with a degree or background in economics from University of Chicago, but then you worked on the engineering side and software development earlier in your career. Take us through that a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, truthfully, my my 20-year-old self thought that I would be in the foreign service. Uh, okay. So, and then had uh, an internship experience, actually, at the Department of State and, and realized as a career that really um, probably wasn't one uh, for me. So going into my last year at university was looking at what was changing in the world around me and how I wanted to be a part of that. 
And this is going back to the late 90s, where we had the beginning of really this internet revolution. And so I said, all right, well, uh, I have a degree in economics, but I think uh, I want to explore um, what it means to be part of this um, sort of technical uh, revolution that's happening. And so I joined a small uh, regional consulting firm based in Chicago, where we were really working on custom software development to digitize processes uh, is what we did. And it was uh, a very um, important and, and significant, clearly uh, early you know, first role for me, where I learned uh, the ins and outs of the technology uh, and how to think about architecture, how to program, uh, how to to really think about the technical building blocks of solutions that people would use. Um, but I've always been personally very interested in the intersection of people, of business and technology, which I think naturally leads one to uh, a data career. And uh, so evolved into more of a data role, having now the educational background in economics and in business, uh, with the early career experiences in the technology and putting both of those kind of uh, practices and experiences together um, has uh, has been, I think, a key part of the success in a career in data. Yeah. So I heard a great or read a great quote from you that um, data is on the front line of the intersection of people and technology. And I picture you having just graduated college, the internet is just starting to become mainstream 25 years ago. And so as you were building these digital apps, were you already then thinking, wait, this is all creating data? And what is what is the byproduct or how do we capitalize on that? Or did that come later? That came later. Uh, I I, I wish I had been that savvy in the early days, but it was an incredible learning curve where I was trying to, at the time, understand uh, the ins and outs of relational databases, uh, Java programming, you know, all of the the key building blocks of of the architecture stack for the products that we were that we were building, and it was really after the first few years that. I started to to really think about more deeply uh, the impacts of the work that we could do on how a business um, is run, how customer experiences are made manifest through technology and uh, data experiences. And it was um, sort of after the first couple of years where I started to to think more data versus more sort of software engineering and tech and brought together the background of now technology and economics um, because I could start to understand and engage in conversations um, about the type of impact that we wanted to create through data transformation. And I also now had the skills on how to lead the team to deliver that impact. So was able to operate successfully in both the business conversations about transformation, as well as the technical conversations and leadership for how to, to take that business North Star, that business goal 
and really start to, to translate that into work um, that could be delivered for the visible impact. So the first years of the career were for me really building out um, that technical skill set and background and bringing it in a certain sense up to par with the business and economics background that I had through the formal education. And it was really being able to put both together uh, that started to take me down the road of data and business transformation through the uses of data. Thank you for taking us through that. So it sounds like as well, early in your career, you were more on the technology side. So I believe it was at Thomson Reuters Mm -hmm. running their engineering team. Mm -hmm. Um, And then later, so, so what drew you to then shift a little bit more to the data side? And what was that first company? So it was, it was actually Thomson Reuters. So Thomson Reuters is in many ways a data company. Uh, the types of products that are sold are very much uh, data and analytic uh, insights that were being sold. So I was in the healthcare and science division at, uh, at Thomson Reuters. And the business model, essentially, loosely put, was to take in large amounts of data from healthcare payer and providers uh, to process it, to um, analyze it, to discover the insights, and then to sell those insights back to the industry. So while it was a highly technical role, the technology, the software, was really built around uh, the uh, onboarding of the data, the harvesting of the insights, and the presentation of that back. And so uh, I think it was through that experience at Thomson Reuters and thinking not only about the technology, but working very closely with the uh, the product teams at Thomson Reuters for how we needed to uh, structure, how we needed to analyze the types of questions that we needed to ask of the data to provide that value back to our customers. Um, that was sort of a, the, probably the first formative experience that started to to take me more definitively down the track of data. Yeah, so early in the time of data monetization, let's say, mm-hmm. um, that's really what you were doing, what we now call data as a product, data monetization. Exactly. And I think back to your dad as the continuous learner, so shifting from technology to data, but then you also changed industries and mm-hmm. cultures and <laughs> yes. domains <laughs> that that's a lot uh so so what was going on there do, do you just like pain or is this <laughs> is this the continuous learning i think it's 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 the continuous learning uh in extreme so uh i went from uh thomson reuters to a company called iri uh, which uh, is a company that really provides insights back to the consumer product industry uh, through data and uh, and analytic platforms, and uh, was uh, recruited actually from IRI to join Unilever as the uh, global head of information and analytics. So it was a chief data officer role uh, without having the title at the time. And the opportunity was in London. Uh, So I remember very clearly 
uh, standing in the kitchen uh, of our apartment at the time with my husband. And I said, yo, I think I'm going to get the job and, and, and the job's in London. And we sort of looked at each other and he said, um, well, you know, as long as, as the pay works out, <laughs> let's do it. Uh, why not? It felt at the time like a, a once in a lifetime opportunity and, and we grabbed it, um, but we didn't really have uh, a lot of expectations about what would be. We just knew that it would be an amazing opportunity, both professionally and personally for the family. So we arrived in London. Uh, we had no place to live. We had a temporary apartment for two months uh, while uh, Unilever supported us in, in finding a home. And, uh, and we knew that when we landed that we were at the very beginning of an experience that for the rest of our lives, we would look back on as being a formative experience. And so we really tried to shape our time there uh, to really get the most out of it. But yeah, we jumped right into the deep end uh, with, uh, with not um, a lot of pre-planning, but it really worked out for the best. And I always recommend when people ask me the question, um, you know, should I think about an international work experience for myself and for my family? And without any hesitation, my answer is always yes. Um, it is not easy. Uh, if you do it right, you will be challenged with preconceived notions that you have. Uh, for myself, my journey was that I had really only worked within uh, U.S. businesses and certainly had international teams, worked with teams in India, worked with teams in Europe and so forth, but always through the lens of U.S. business. And um, my cultural identity was, uh, I would have described it in very U.S.-centric terms. I would have used very U.S.-centric terms for how, how I would describe my leadership, how I would uh, sort of describe the the type of opportunities that I was looking for. And having an international uh, sort of platform, an international context, uh, really starts to, to challenge some of these uh, preconceived notions and increase as a result uh, the self-awareness um, that I had. Yes. About just how sort of culturally American I, I really was and, and in fact am. Um, so it's different rules, it's different customs, um, and you need to learn how to listen differently and how to be much more self-aware uh, for how um, a message lands on an audience uh, that is coming from a very diverse set of uh, cultural, uh, social, economic, uh, professional backgrounds. So again, not easy, but um, highly recommended um, as an experience that in a very short order of time, I think, um, gives an opportunity for a very important professional maturity. Definitely. So there's a couple things to unpack there. One is your move from, let's say, um, somewhat data services, financial services into CPG. Mm -hmm. So Unilever, um, we had Unilever on the Data Chief podcast, mm -hmm. uh, Diksha Singh and Vantana, um, but it's not a household name for some. So give us one of your favorite Unilever products then or now. So in the U.S., it's uh, Ben & Jerry's. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then in the U.K., 
Uh, it was actually PG Tips, <laughs> the tea. I loved the oh, tea. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know they did PG Tips. I like yeah. I like their Magnum ice cream personally. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as Ben and Jerry's. But um. <laughs> it's not so much a household name here in the U.S. Uh, we, when Unilever, yeah. sort of the recruiter first reached out from from Unilever, I had, I had to look it up. And um, many of the brands I recognized um, but I didn't necessarily recognize the brand of the manufacturer. Yes. Um, when you go outside of the U.S., it's very much a household name. Uh, you know, two billion people use one or more Unilever products per day, so it really is a scaled global uh, company. Indeed. And uh, stepping into that world was uh, uh, was a lot of fun, um, but definitely um, wasn't. Uh, wasn't easy. It was also a lot of hard work to to enter into the flow of such a uh, a scaled and and distinguished company. Yeah. Now, um, Tersten, I don't know if you know this, but I I so I discovered the Unilever brand when I was living in Switzerland and it, where where I moved when I was in my twenties. I'm picturing you, a Midwesterner for the most part, moving to England. <laughs> um, what would you say uh, from a leadership or culture style was the biggest awakening in in difference in cultures, both because Unilever, a lot of the manufacturing is also in India. Mm-hmm. So you might have been in Lo- living in London at mm-hmm. the time, yeah. but what were some of the things where you had to adapt your leadership style? The biggest change was really in how I listened. So language uh, has a tremendous uh, nuance to it, really. And how people use language to communicate with you as a leader, as a peer, uh, as a senior executive, as a board member, is very culturally sensitive. So I think it was Winston Churchill who said that we were two people separated by a common language between uh, the UK and the US. And I wouldn't say that we're separated, but uh, the intent of language can be very culturally specific in its context. And so I had to, A, discover that I needed to be self-aware and then truly relearn how to listen to people and understand what they were trying to tell me based on their cultural context, based on uh, their comfort in the English language, and to be very sensitive to the bias that I naturally brought with me as a native English speaker from the United States. So that was the single I think most important and impactful leadership change uh, was in listening. And that drove a lot of other changed behaviors as I started to have a deeper understanding, really, of the message and the intent of the message that was being delivered. Thank you for sharing that. It reminds me of somebody in the last two years told me, I use the word worry a lot. I'll say I'm worried about something. 
in I think in American English, that's not a big word. Like I'm not staying awake a night over it, but <laughs> where it whereas it can be very alarming to mm -hmm. some people in a European culture or Indian culture. Were there certain words that you knew you had to change? Absolutely. Or is this just a general guidance? Yeah, exactly. It's facial expressions. It's body language that goes along with that. Somebody said, wow, you really smile a lot. I said, I mean, I smile a lot. They say, yeah, you know, when you're talking to, you know, to people, you know, from, from this context, you know, they think you're joking, right? And, you know, the facial expressions that go with the language, you know, they, they take you less seriously um, if, you are perceived by them to not be as serious. So some of even the facial expressions and body language that we would use as leaders in the United States as icebreakers, as helping an audience, helping a group be more comfortable with you, um, actually have the opposite effect um, in, in different contexts. And abstractly, I knew that was true, but you really have to experience it to understand how to moderate or calibrate your behavior uh, to to the audience and to the context that you need to lead and operate in. So do you smile less? <laughs> I'm back in the States. I would find that hard. <laughs> I'm back in the States. Uh, so I will say uh, no, probably not. But uh, certainly when I'm working with teams um, elsewhere, it's a skill to read the room uh, through that lens and understand uh, what type of um, sort of presentation um, that I need to think through in order to have the most impact. I also do more research now uh, sort of on what are sort of cultural business norms uh, in different countries. So I can help to help myself avoid uh, any faux pas or taking uh, words or behaviors that um, mean one thing here in the U.S. and are perhaps interpreted very differently elsewhere uh, and really calibrate to that context. So, uh, and it increases effectiveness across all of the sort of types of work that one as a leader or a partner uh, would need to do. So. Right, right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I do think reading the room is a very important skill, especially when you're driving change mm -hmm. and innovating and doing things for the first time. So let's move a little bit forward. You left Unilever, came back to the States, and were one of the first CDOs mm -hmm. um, in, let's say, in the data and analytics industry, but the first CDO at State Farm. Mm -hmm. What was that like? So it's uh, State Farm is a tremendous company. I have immense respect uh, for State Farm as an organization. So I was the inaugural chief data and analytics officer at State Farm and was really uh, brought in to help shape a vision for data and analytics uh, in uh, for both the processes uh, as well as the experiences, the customer experiences, the agent experiences that State Farm delivered. And I enjoyed my time there tremendously. Uh, we, uh, I had, and, and State Farm still has, I think a very strong 
uh, data uh, analytics, data science team. So it was uh, my first time as an inaugural uh, chief data and analytics officer. So CDAO was the title there. So it it was a development experience for me as well to bring together uh, all of the components of sort of professional career around setting mission, vision, strategy, uh, technical direction, operating model, uh, ways of working you know, through adoption of agile and so forth, uh, and really bring it into a foundational experience for a department uh, and how to put the pieces together from what uh, was in many ways a, a blank sheet of paper. Uh, not entirely blank, clearly, because uh, State Farm as an organization uh, exists already. Uh, so it provided um, tremendous value to the organization. Uh, I think the organization uh, itself learned a lot about the potential and the power of uses of data uh, and uses of data science and analytics. And I think, uh, you know, I'm very um, happy and, and proud to have been a part of the journey at the company, you know, in these sort of transformation moments of how to think about competing differently, how to competitively differentiate uh, through uses of data in addition to other types of transformation programs. So uh, it was a bit of a cultural shock um, going from London back to Illinois. We worked through that as well, but uh, ultimately it uh, was a very uh, strong and productive and rewarding three years at State Farm. Yeah. And so you've continued with this inaugural CDO office <laughs> at Prudential Financial. So again, standing up a, a new CDO office, was there something that changed in Prudential where they recognized that this was something they needed to do? So Prudential has been an absolutely tremendous experience. And the short answer to your question is absolutely yes. Um, so I, I describe it to people as we have layers of transformation that are happening simultaneously. From a business and strategy perspective, from our CEO, board of directors on down, Prudential has had uh, a reawakening in thinking through strategy, uh, market leadership opportunities, and uh, really competing in global leadership uh, positions for the products and the, and the geographies in which we operate, uh, with a recognition that what got us here to where we are today, a very successful, well-established company that's almost 150 years old, um, isn't necessarily the same uh, recipe that will take us to uh, sort of competitive differentiation and excellence in the future. So a very clear tone from the top uh, about how we are strategically thinking about the ways in which uh, Prudential defines itself and operates and presents itself for future competition. As Part of that, a very obvious example of that sort of leadership intent uh, from the top is the Global Technology Organization um, was created approximately three years ago. And that really 
brought together the vertically integrated uh, technology groups in the U.S. insurance business uh, first and brought the, the strength and scale of a sort of single technology uh, team with an operating model uh, and to, to really up our game in terms of how we were thinking about being very uh, sort of close partners um, to the business in using technology to compete uh, and compete in differentiated ways. And so within that sort of new global technology organization, the chief data office was created. So I joined Prudential uh, just under two years ago as the inaugural chief data officer, uh, really with the, the mission of thinking through how we build uh, a sort of industry-leading data uh, and analytics team to partner across the business, partner across uh, the global technology areas and pillars to use data to provide those um, sort of differentiated competitive outcomes. So it's it's a it's a magical moment in in many sense is for uh, for transformation in that the organization itself is going through an examination of strategy, of roadmaps, of execution, uh, an openness to how processes are redefined, how customer, employee, and shareholder experiences are evolved. And to be uh, a key contributor in that journey, uh, representing data, business intelligence, and data science uh, is really, in many ways, a very um, liberating experience to be sort of pulled into the change uh, rather than, than having to kind of sell the art of the possible uh, and then see what sticks. So it's been absolutely phenomenal and tremendous. And I have um, just tremendous respect for Charlie Lowry, uh, Rob Fausen, Stacey Goodman, uh, the leadership of Prudential in how they are thinking very critically about the future of the company and how to put the building blocks into place in order to deliver on that strategy and vision. Yeah, so there's a couple things that you said there, Chairston, that I want to reinforce. Um, what worked for the last 120 years uh, will not necessarily work going forward. And this has been repeated a few times. I think of Max Chan, the CIO of Avnet, who was on season one of the Data Chief podcast, Sully McConnell, the CDO at the Hartford. So cross industries, this theme is being repeated. But then you also talked about the vertical integration that was there before. So maybe insurance had their own IT infrastructure and data team, maybe financial advisory and then retirements, retirement planning, what have you. Everyone had their own teams. Now, <laughs> you come in mm -hmm. um, and you're trying to look at things across these teams. I would imagine there's some friction that is maybe not so magical, or was it all magical from the beginning? <laughs> I think this is where culture really matters on this one. And Prudential historically has had a culture of collaboration. So 
You are right to say that there is tension, but the cultural response to that tension is to put the question on the table and to work it through. Rather than my turf, stay out of my backyard. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Rather than entrenchment, rather than the sort of fighting or passive aggressive politicking. Uh, yes, we are a big company. I can't say that that doesn't exist at all. But the cultural reflex is collaboration and partnership. And so when there are legitimate, very serious questions that need to be worked through, the culture supports that. And there's a consistency to how the different roles and the different seats at the table in that conversation are approaching that same conversation together. And I think that's a very important ingredient in successful transformations is the cultural bias towards partnership, working together, not avoiding the hard questions or the tension, but acknowledging them and acknowledging it in such a way that it can be worked through. So the velocity of the team, uh, the clarity of leadership intent uh, can be um, supported and solidified and, and we can move, we can go, we can deliver, we can execute. So did you assess that before you joined or did you get lucky? Uh, I did my best. I did my best. I would say some of it was luck. In the interview process, I was initially interviewed by my future boss, uh, colleagues in global technology, and the team. And there was this moment when somebody asked me, so do you think you've had all the conversations that you need to have at Prudential? And I said, well, actually, I haven't talked to any stakeholders yet. <laughs> and, and that's actually the audience that I want to interview me, and I want to have the opportunity to ask questions of them. And it was remarkable. Uh, within a week, I had uh, four interviews, I think it was, with very senior stakeholders um, at the company. And we had uh, very open, honest, collaborative conversations about um, my qualifications for the role and the, the types of questions that I would have about their investment in the sponsorship of what is fundamentally a very uh, difficult transformation journey uh, in how you think about uh, business processes, business behaviors, customer experiences that are transforming to become uh, insight enabled. Um, that is a, a non-trivial business change program uh, enabled by data and analytics. So so I did my best and, uh, you know, I advise people to, to do that. Talk to the team, talk to your colleagues, uh, talk to your stakeholders, uh, and talk to the sponsors. And if any one of those group sort of declines to show up in an interview process, or, uh, if you can maybe sense, uh, you know, some ambiguity in, in how people are thinking, uh, then that really is an opportunity and I think a, a personal obligation to oneself to, to poke and to probe uh, to see if it really is a good fit. 
Yeah, that's wonderful advice. I'll share with you two stats. I was just making sure I had the numbers right. Um, A poll that I ran in April on LinkedIn, sensing that CDOs are moving faster than they were before. 41% the CDO gets fed up with the friction and leaves. Um, 26% the CDO gets booted out because one side of that equation is not happy or feels like they were pushed too hard. So if we can avoid that before you're in the job, but sometimes (laughs) you don't know until you're already in. Exactly. Well, so tell us then, um, so you joined data science is a little bit of a backroom thing when you've joined. How have you pulled it into the main line of the business transformation strategy? It's a a non-negotiable for the work that we do before we begin the work to understand what it is that we're building and why we're doing it. Those link to business strategy. At the end of the day, data science is uh, an incredibly powerful tool in the toolbox. But within the the corporate context, such as Prudential, uh, it needs to exist within a context that delivers business impact, which means that the first first in many ways is how the use of data science is going to be materially important to the delivery of business strategy. So we ask that question up front. And if we don't really understand uh, the answer, uh, or if the change program uh, within the business to use and to deliver the results of the data science work uh, is underdeveloped, then we call that out. And again, the, the cultural reflex of Prudential for collaboration and partnership, it's actually, I shouldn't use the words calling it out, we identify it as a question. Um, that we need to work on. And we need to have very clear leadership intent about what we're building, why we're doing it, and and how it's going to deliver the results that are intended at the beginning of the work. And just those simple questions really bring into focus, both for the data science team, for the business teams that we're working with, uh, for the collaboration partners that we have in the risk, the privacy groups, um, the partnerships that we have in the CIO uh, pieces of global technology, uh, it really it, it clarifies that leadership intent and it can get people aligned very early in the process of what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how we're going to accomplish it. And that clarity of intent uh, really helps to then have uh, very clear accountability in uh, you know sort of delivery and usage, and we can we can go, <laughs> uh, and the results are the results are are amazing uh, to to really see what an empowered team can deliver and the impact that they can have in a pretty short order. So give us an example of the results. Are you allowed to share specifically? (laughs) 
Absolutely. Underwriting. I don't know. Take underwriting, customer service. For example, underwriting. Yes. So we do speak uh, publicly about our underwriting programs uh, that we have in, in medical underwriting. And it has been... Um, uh, it's been a lot of fun, actually, to to work on this. Uh, where, for example, in our individual um, uh, life insurance business, uh, last year we had sixty uh, percent of our decisions um, were accelerated. In group insurance, we went to seventy percent um, uh, instant decisioning uh, in that, and. You know, these were programs where just a handful of years ago we were in single decision, single digits uh, for either the accelerated or the instant decisioning. And when we benchmark uh, as best as we can uh, against an industry, um, we are kind of close to or have um, line of sight into how we are sort of uh, in the running to be competitively differentiating based on the underwriting programs that we have um, through the use of data science. Yeah. So that's profound. Mm -hmm. That's that's measurable <laughs> Correct. Yeah. on both the customer loyalty cost to deliver. Mm -hmm. And yet, if we go back to your first point about asking what is the business strategy, what is the why? Mm -hmm. What specifically do you and your team do if a business stakeholder says, well, I'm not sure what's possible? Mm -hmm. How do you flesh that out? We work on it together. Uh, again, it's meeting people where they are and not sitting across the table from them, but metaphorically speaking, sitting shoulder to shoulder with them. <laughs> Say, okay, well, well, help me understand what your questions are. And let's work on it together um, to explore what the answer could be. So that shoulder to shoulder, do you sometimes as part of um, design thinking, you would say, go actually sit next to somebody who's asking for a life insurance policy and go through that process. Does it get that shoulder to shoulder? Uh, it has, yes, actually, through um, various um, programs that we have with our uh, sort of customer first initiatives um, led through the CMO. Uh, our underwriting teams are very much engaged um, with both the the underwriting um, as a process as well as with the customer experience there. So it it depends, right? Each each learning situation, each learning path is going to be it's going to be different in some way, and it's recognizing that fact. And saying, "All right, you know, let's let's get after it together." And here are um, the types of questions that we need to explore. Here's the type of education that we need to help provide about what the capability is. Um, here are the types of conversations that we need to have, and maybe here's some that we don't need to have. Yeah, most of our work in data science um, exists within a business change program, and uh, we engage within that business change program as a key capability that allows that program to be successful. So we're uh, a part of, um, but we, we see ourselves as an important piece of the puzzle rather than uh, a single sort of end-to-end -end, um, thing or model that's created 
and then we we pop it over the fence uh, for somebody else to figure out how to do with it. That's that's just not the approach that we've taken. Uh, we're we're very careful to make sure that we're part of a business change program because that business change program is really bringing together all the components needed to deliver that business impact from data science, uh, software engineering, risk compliance, uh, the HR dimension to it uh, as well for kind of the the people engaged in old processes and how they start to engage in new processes. Um, so that's that has been sort of a, a key part of the success. And when you put that together with the the cultural instinct at Prudential for collaboration, it actually becomes uh, a very, very um, powerful recipe for important change. It does sound like a powerful recipe, and you're only two years in and have already <laughs> delivered such profound impact. That's not just moving the needle, that's um, increasing the speedometer or lack of a better <laughs> analogy. So, so what's next on this journey? Well, uh, we are... Uh, we are a young department, so uh, our two-year anniversary is uh, June fifteenth, uh, coming up here in uh, June fifteenth, twenty twenty-two. So, oh, congratulations! Thank Happy you, anniversary! <laughs> thank you very much to the team. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know what's uh, there? There are a few building blocks to what's next. Um, the first and and the most important really is the, the talent within the team, uh, how we are uh, systematically thinking about scaling the organization. Um, we will very likely double in size this year based on the pull from the business uh, that I had talked about. Uh, so how do we think about upskilling? How do we systematically think about reskilling how do we think about the new types of skills and experience and diversity uh, that we need to bring in uh, from either elsewhere within the organization uh, or you know, through external hires? So this topic of talent uh, is, uh, I guess it's a perpetual what's next um, that, that we're thinking about almost every day. Yeah. Um, the second sort of building block is um, we're... Kind of, uh, you know, we started in the United States as we built out the department, uh, and we're talking about what it what it means to be global. Um, how is the type of capability, the platforms, uh, the the work product, the intellectual property that we've developed? How is that helpful to? How is that um, additive to uh, the other countries in which Prudential operates? Um, so very much like we did here in the U.S., we're asking the question, and we will answer it together um, with our partners um, in uh, in the international non-U.S. markets. Yeah, good. Uh, and then it's really scale. Scale is the name of the game here in the U.S. So uh, we're working to get deeper into um, as well as sort of more broadly expansive so, Chairston, that is a lot to look forward to. Uh, let's do a quick lightning round. Favorite sports team? Chicago Cubs. <laughs> Could you have said that any faster? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm thinking of my friend uh, D- Doug Laney, who's who's a few blocks from Wrigley Stadium. Um, uh, similarly. Oh, lucky him. <laughs> so... 
Do you have a fa- favorite books? How are you keeping up? Or um, and a song that pumps you up after a hard day, maybe when it's not so magical. So the book that I'm reading right now is the Checklist Manifesto: How to Get Things Right. Uh, so it's uh, I'm just beginning, but it's uh, it's an interesting book. Um, I'm looking forward to finishing it hopefully this weekend. Uh, and then songs that pump me up uh, you know, during the pandemic. I've actually found a lot of joy in the YouTube videos of live concert performances. So when we were in lockdown, couldn't really go outside. Certainly there were no live events. You know, watching the Bruce Springsteen concert from, you know, 2002 (laughs) has just been fantastic. You know, where they pan over the crowd and there's 50,000 people cheering and jumping up and down. And uh, you can put the headphones in and just sort of block out kind of the, the difficulties for a little while of 2022 and kind of get in the flow. It's uh, yeah, it's been really nice. So it's not necessarily the music. It's this combination of, you know, the live concert plus the music uh, that has has really been a lot of fun. I like that. And probably remembering back when you would wait up in line all night for those tickets. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, It's there's a lot of goodness there. Definitely. (laughs) So, Tarastin, we've already had a number of of laughs in this episode, but I want you to maybe think about in the last year, the last few months, something that has um, truly made you laugh out loud tears rolling down your cheeks, uh, belly laugh, or or maybe, you know, from your time in, in London, working abroad, I can imagine that was an interesting time. Absolutely. Well, it's uh, laughter is, uh, is frequent in, in our house. Um, but I, if I could perhaps reframe the question just a little bit sure. to in the last year, what experiences at work have brought joy? And um, we had a leadership offsite event for my team at Prudential where offsite was just a different room in your house. <laughs> we all got on teams and had our offsite. Uh, and in our uh, virtual happy hour, we invited uh, the families to join us uh, through teams. And it was very easy to do that because they were all at home. And we had uh, a number, have um, a number of children who in the team who are very musical. And so we had teams, musical performances. Uh, One young woman uh, is a songwriter. So she played us a song that she had written. Uh, We had uh, two children of a member of the team who were, I think, uh, seven and nine uh, who were tremendous uh, singers. So we they sang us songs. <laughs> and it was absolutely joyful to be virtually um, together, but in uh, a very kind of human bonding experience. And it really stands out as um, one of the highlights uh, made possible, um, unfortunately, by the pandemic. Thank you so much for sharing that joy with us, Kirsten. It's been great having you on the Data Chief. All right. Likewise, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Data Chief. 
To learn more about today's guest, recommend a future guest, or hear more of the show, head over to thedatachief.com. If you have questions for Cindy or comments about the episode, give her a shout by dropping your thoughts on LinkedIn and tagging Cindy Housen. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Every review helps more people discover the podcast and helps us improve our content. The Data Chief is presented by our friends at ThoughtSpot, the modern analytics cloud company. ThoughtSpot makes it easy for anyone to analyze your company's data with search and AI. Business people at companies like Verizon, CVS, Amazon, Afterpay, OpenTable, and T-Mobile use ThoughtSpot to quickly uncover new insights and turn them into action. And you can learn more at ThoughtSpot.com.